The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. from Washington, D.C. every Wednesday from 3 to 4 p.m. for an hour-long Generation Progress Takeover. Check us out at genprogress.org or on Twitter at genprogress. Hello and welcome to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. My name is Brent J. Cohen. And I'm Charlotte Hancock. And as many of you already know, we are uh, recording these Generation Progress takeovers from home in order to practice physical distancing and comply with vital stay-at-home measures, making sure that we do our part to flatten the curve and help stop the spread of COVID-19. If you're also staying home, thank you for doing your part to keep your community safe. And if you are an essential worker, if you are doing things from delivering packages to stocking grocery shelves to uh, working in hospitals as a doctor, a nurse, or reception, whatever the case may be, thank you for all that you are doing to keep our community safe and functioning during this unprecedented period. Today, we are talking again about COVID-19 because this is this is the conversation that needs to be had, and we're talking about and highlighting an extremely alarming but sadly not unexpected trend that has emerged and come to the forefront during this pandemic. And that's specifically the fact that communities of color, uh, particularly the black community, but also in certain cities, for example, in New York and others, the Latino community, uh, are contracting the infection at much higher rates than white people and are uh, perhaps most alarming here, experiencing consistently worse outcomes and complications from the disease. Uh, For example, here in Washington, D.C., Data has shown that Black people have been have made up around 80% of the deaths from COVID-19, despite making up only around 50% of the D.C. population. Uh, similar trends are being found in New York City and in Chicago uh, that have perhaps even higher racial disparities in COVID-19 deaths. And some states, and, and this is a good thing now, some states have begun reporting infection and death rates by race so that we can track this trend and begin to untangle and address it in very intentional ways. To learn more about why this exists, why this disparity exists, and what it will take to mitigate the impact of racism in public health, we are joined by Dorian Mason, the Director of Health Equity at the National Women's Law Center, and Connor Maxwell, a Senior Policy Analyst on the race and ethnicity team at the Center for American Progress. Dorian and Connor, thank you both so much for being with us today. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to, so to, to sort of start us off here and, and help folks orient themselves with the work that you both do and, and your background that you bring to the work, Connor, let's have you share a bit about the work that you're doing at the Center for American Progress at CAP and specifically the race and ethnicity uh, policy team and and your approach here to this work, both as a team and as a as an individual. Yeah, sure, Brent. Uh, it's an excellent question. Um, so I I actually grew up in Washington D.C. Um, 
it's a it's a wonderful town, but it's also a place with profound structural inequality. You know, the typical white household in D.C. has about 80 times more wealth than the typical black household. Um, and as as I grew up, I learned that this wasn't just a local issue that you see every day in your classroom. It's actually a national issue. So now I work at CAP. Um, where I use data to explore racial disparities and everything from housing to economic opportunity, education, and healthcare. And then we, we work to develop inclusive solutions that help to reduce some of these disparities and expand equity. Awesome. Thanks, Connor. And, and I want to talk a little bit about the ways in which you're doing that work, including a, a recent column that you had come out in just a few minutes that specifically talks about uh, the racial disparities here and inequities in the health system and how that's coming to the forefront as it relates to COVID-19. So Dorian, uh, could you help folks get oriented with you and your work and just share a little bit about the mission of the National Women's Law Center and, and a bit about your role as Director of Health Equity? Yes. Uh, so the National Women's Law Center has been at the forefront of every major legal and policy um, issue for women for over 45 years. We are advocates and experts and lawyers and we fight for gender justice. So um, the way that I look at women and the complexity of their lives, and those are the things that we are pushing in the courts, in public policy, um, and generally in society, um, particularly with a, frame, a framework that supports and centers uh, women who face multiple forms of discrimination. And for my role as director of health equity, I like to think of myself as the person that builds the bridge, right? So when we're really considering health equity, it really, you have to take a look at every aspect of a person that impacts their ability to access good health. And um, since we are a multi-issue organization, I like to think that I bring a health equity framework to every issue that we work on at the law center, be it childcare, be it um, reproductive rights, obviously, be it um, workplace safety, all of those things um, will relate back to a person's ability to have good health. So um, that's the work that I bring to the Law Center. Great. Thank you so much, Dorian. And thank you so much for uh, the work that you do. Um, so as we mentioned in the show's introduction, communities of color and especially black communities have experienced consistently worse outcomes from COVID-19. Um, at a high level, Connor, um, let's go ahead and start with you. Um, why are we seeing these trends? Sure. It's a, it's a great question. Um, first, I, I'll just say that you know, inequalities really magnified during times of national crises. We saw this during H1N1 when the Latino community and uh, Native American folks were disproportionately impacted, made up a high percentage of those who died from that virus. And we're seeing it now. And it's really being driven by three big factors. Uh, the first is exposure. Uh, the second is differences in underlying health conditions. And then the third is access to care. Um, so, you know, I can I can get into all of these a little bit further um, as we go along. But first, I'll just say, you know, with exposure, it comes down to occupational and housing segregation. People of color are much more likely to be restricted to um, jobs where that are so-called frontline jobs, jobs like uh, bus drivers and um, cashiers at grocery stores. Um, with housing segregation, you know, a lot of people of color, especially in places like New York City, a uh, crowded laundromat or grocery store or train ride is just an, a normal part of everyday life um, because they've been so restricted um, to densely populated urban areas. With health disparities, 
um, again, I can go into this further, but you see stark differences in underlying health conditions like asthma, diabetes, hypertension, and that make it you uh, at much greater risk of getting very sick if you contract coronavirus. And then the last is treatment or lack thereof. Uh, people of color face larger barriers to treatment. Those include things like cost. Um, you know, as many as one in five people of color needed to see a doctor in 2018, but could not because of cost. Um, and also language access. You know, Americans speak 350 different languages, and there are federal laws that require, um, you know, healthcare providers to provide treatment in the language of your preference. But the data show that that just isn't happening. And so the combination of those three factors, exposure, uh, disparities in health conditions and barriers to care are really driving uh, these overall disparities in coronavirus outcomes. Thanks so much, uh, Connor. That was a really great top-level view for this. And I'm, I'm excited to dig into more about each of those issues when we come back from our commercial break. Uh, you've been listening to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show, and we will be back with you in just a few minutes. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show. Welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I am your co-host, Charlotte Hancock. And I'm Brent J. Cohen. Uh, and today we are highlighting um, an alarming but sadly not unexpected trend that has emerged during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, communities of color, especially the black community, are contracting the uh, contracting the infection at much higher rates than white people um, and experiencing consistently worse outcomes with dis this disease. Um, today joining us uh, virtually, remotely, we have uh, Dorian, Mace Dorian Mason um, from the National Women's Law Center and Connor Maxwell from the Center for American Progress. So Dorian, um, I wanna jump back in with a question for you. Uh, what are some of the types, um, the different types of health disparities that people and communities of color face uh, on, on the regular? And then, you know, how, how is this pandemic um, sort of exacerbating that? Yeah, absolutely. So I, um, I like to, I've been thinking about the COVID-19 pandemic really in four phases. So the being, what's the lead up? Um, what does the health of your community look like? What does the health, you know, the individual look like? Uh, the, you know, phase two, what happens when COVID-19 hits? And then phase three, you know, I, if I'm exposed, then I'm actually you know, diagnosed what happens now. So when we're talking about the health disparities, we're seeing health disparities at every single one of those phases. So if you even think in the bigger picture with environmental justice, does this person have access to clean air, clean water, um, housing that's free, right? And particularly when we're thinking about the aspect of asthma being one of the underlying um, uh, issues that makes COVID more, you know, lethal or dangerous for an individual. So let's think about environmental justice. If we're thinking about, you know, food justice, does this person have access to healthy foods that help build in a strong immune system and a healthy life? Um, health conditions that makes COVID-19 um, more, more dangerous. And then as um, the other guests talked about, access to care. So does this person have access to 
care coverage to address or manage any underlying conditions, right? So it's it's really so many aspects of someone's life um, and the health disparities that they experience or encounter that's going to make someone have a more dangerous encounter with COVID-19. Um, and we know that some of the underlying conditions like asthma, high blood pressure, heart disease, diabetes, um, obesity, those are all um, issues that occur uh, at higher rates in communities of color. And that's not on accident. Those things don't just happen. Um, those are results of a lot of structural inequities that are in place um, that are much broader than just, you know, does this person about the end of their life? And what does the sum of those parts mean in the face of a pandemic like COVID-19? And unfortunately, what it means is that all of those things that are slowly over the course of their lives really undermining um, their ability to have good health, those are going to be exacerbated in a time of, um, of a you know, pandemic like we're seeing now. Yeah, I think in this case, we're seeing in this issue area and in so many of the issue areas that Generation Progress works on, um, that it's really demonstrating kind of how bad some of these things were to begin with. It's just uh, making making those crises much worse and much more visible um, in a variety of vulnerable communities. Um, and I think, Charlotte, if I can jump in, I think it points to how these things overlap as well. You know, hearing Dorianne talk about the environmental justice angle. And so when you think about the fact that there are more trash dumps in communities of color, when there are more bus depots in communities of color, when there are freeways that cut through communities of color or communities that have traditionally been uh, where black and brown folks live. And so you end up with respiratory, uh, higher rates of asthma, for example, or other respiratory illnesses. and you don't necessarily, folks don't necessarily think about environmental, I'm sorry, in terms of bus depots or, or freeways from the health perspective, but we know there are huge health implications and now we're seeing those rise to the surface here. And so those, those things are not unrelated and in fact overlap in very concrete and specific ways um, as, as we heard Dorian talk about just now. And uh, Connor, some of you sort of pulled apart some of these, um, some of these components in a recent column that you put out um, for the Center for American Progress about uh, actually specifically speaking to what Dorian just mentioned from the standpoint of how the virus is compounding inequality. Are there, are there additional threads here that you think we should pull on um, about these intersections? Uh, sure. It, you know, it's an excellent question. I think environmental justice has not been at the forefront of this as much as it should be. Um, when a lot of folks are talking about coronavirus and where people are getting sick and where they're dying, they think to New York naturally. But, you know, actually, if you look at the data, um, one of the most hard hit places in the country right now is um, St. John the Baptist Parish in Louisiana. And that's it's a, it's a rural uh, county, a rural parish, about 44,000 residents, a few miles away from New Orleans. Um, and this, this parish actually has one of the highest death rates nationally, and it's not an accident. You know, this is an area that has been overrun by petrochem petrochemical factories over the last few decades. It has the seven census tracts with the highest cancer rates in the country. It has one census tract with a cancer rate that's 700 times the national average. And of course, unsurprising to, you know, to your listeners, you know, this is a predominantly black parish and mostly low income where 
you know, more than half of residents are struggling even to make rent. And so, you know, we really need to talk more about environmental justice and about how, you know, none of this is an accident. None of this is random. There were intentional decisions when you, when a state uh-huh. decided that they, they wanted to let a petrochemical factory in, they want, they had to decide where to put it. And the low income black community made the most sense. And this, you know, we did a segment on this a few, a few weeks back now talking about uh, the rollbacks of the, um, of one of the environmental protection laws that existed and how it was one of the few opportunities NEPA for communities to weigh in and say, if you are imposing uh, something that could provide an environmental risk, we need opportunities to mitigate it. And again, that's that's primarily been looked at from sort of an environmental lens here, but there are huge health implications. And as Connor just laid out uh, in that parish in Louisiana, um, these skyrocketing rates of cancer and cancer diagnosis and then we get into the COVID conversation and we know that those who either currently have or are undergoing cancer treatment or have in the past undergone cancer treatment are at significantly increased risk here for complications from COVID-19. So again, just, just sort of placing these things together and showing that they are in fact very much connected and overlapping and really all part of one conversation. When we come back from break here in just a second, we're gonna talk a bit more about the COVID-19 and health disparities that we're seeing here on the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Martin Show. Hello and welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Brent J. Cohen. And I'm Charlotte Hancock. And we're talking today about the um, health disparities and um, just unfortunately, alarmingly high um, rates of uh, communities of color and specifically the black community uh, having worse outcomes when contracting the COVID-19 and unfortunately also being more likely to contract COVID-19. And so talking with us today about some of the underlying health disparities um, and structural racism that has really, I think, undergirded so much of this, we have Dorian Mason from the National Women's Law Center and Connor Maxwell from the Center for American Progress Race and Ethnicity team. Uh, thanks so much for coming back with us here, Dorian and Connor. Hey, thanks, Brent and Charlotte. So glad to be on. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Dorian, I want to I want to um, talk a bit. We've we've talked a, a quite a bit about the health disparities that we're seeing, as well as the differences in rates here, as it relates specifically to COVID nineteen. And I think some of our listeners are probably more familiar with the term health equity than others. Um, and so that is quite literally the the core of your title as director of health equity. What if you could just sort of give us the high level? What does health equity mean to you, and what does that what does that actually look like in practice? Yeah. So when I talk about health health equity, I actually have people just take a moment and close their eyes and think about the last time that they needed to access care. And so when you're thinking about that, think about were you concerned about whether or not you had insurance? If you had insurance, were you concerned about whether or not whatever you needed would be covered? Uh, Were you concerned about the amount of money that it would cost? Um, If you had to get to your provider, did you have transportation to do that? Did you have paid leave to be able to take those hours off of work? If you took those hours off of work, would you be punished or would you be able to make your rent for that month? Um, if you had children, did you have child care, right? If you needed to be able to go and get that treatment or go to that doctor, um, all of those things and many more 
really build out what health equity is. Health equity, that means that everybody, no matter their position, no matter their race, their gender, their ethnicity, their any other identity, um, has access to good health. And what really is central to the work that I do is to remove those structural and interpersonal barriers that allow for some people to have much more access to good health than others. Thanks, Dory. And that, that totally makes sense. And I think when you start to break it down to when you went in for the doctor or the hospital, did someone ask you for that insurance card? Were you worried about whether or not you had one in your wallet? Were you worried about whether or not you could afford health insurance uh, or your copay, even if you do have it? And if you don't have health insurance, what that, have you ever sort of been prevented from walking in the door to get care to begin with? And that is certainly just mm-hmm. one component, I think, of, of what you just walked us through in terms of health equity. So thanks for, thanks for breaking it down for us in those bite-sized pieces. Um, I think, so, so recognizing that we don't have a current landscape that includes health equity, um, and so Connor, thinking about at a high level, what needs to be done so that we can begin leveling the playing field and ensuring that communities of color are not disproportionately impacted during crises like this one? Sure. Um, so I think about this in the short term and the long term. Uh, in the short term, you know, there's a lot that lawmakers can do. Um, first and foremost, they really need to expand and ramp up testing. Um, you have places like Texas where you know, only a tenth of all of the cases have racial demographic data. Um, you know, in such a, a, a large and diverse state, they really need to be doing a better job at that. Um, the second thing is governors can establish racial disparities task forces uh, to, ex- to explore these issues and provide targeted recommendations based on what they're seeing in their states. Uh, these task forces can sit in the governor's office and should be staffed with experts from, you know, from around the state. We're seeing it in Michigan, Colorado, and Louisiana, but it should be nationwide. Um, and then the third thing is, you know, as Dorianne was saying, we really need to eliminate some of these barriers to treatment. Uh, barriers like cost, uh, language access is a huge one. You know, there are federal laws that guarantee that you should be able to access care in, the, in your preferred language, but you know, and a, a third of Asian Americans and, and, and Latinos uh, are limited English proficient, but most hospitals don't have robust translation services. Most departments of health aren't pr- translating information about coronavirus into languages other than um, English. Um, and so, you know, those are some, some immediate steps we can take. Uh, longer term, we need to talk more about environmental justice. Some of the, you know, contributing factors uh, to these racial disparities and underlying health conditions. We also need to talk about occupational and housing segregation and making sure that all Americans, regardless of their race or ethnicity, has equal access to opportunity, um, that nobody is having to make these tough choices about putting food on their table or getting that treatment that they really, really need. Um, you know, I have asthma myself. Um, you know, an asthma attack feels like trying to breathe out of a stirring straw. I have health insurance and I'm so thankful for it, um, you know, that it's provided through my employer, but there are a lot of people who have asthma who don't have it. And so they're going untreated. They're at huge risk to a virus like this. And so longer term, we, I echo Dorian completely. We need to be thinking more about health equity. 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Connor. And I, I appreciate you bringing up like some a lot of the solutions that I think we should be seeing. Um, Dorian, if there is anything that you could see represented um, in, uh, you know, it's great that we've got so much legislation moving so quickly right now. Um, so if there's something you could see represented in a fourth federal stimulus package um, that you think would help communities of color, what would you what would you be asking for? So um, I think it was mentioned earlier about the disproportionate rate of people of color being in these frontline positions. Um, unfortunately, it's also true that many of these frontline positions are women. So we're seeing that, you know, when we're fighting COVID-19, the people who are on the front lines fighting it are also sometimes some of the people who are the most vulnerable to it. And so for the National Women's Law Center, we are we want a holistic approach. And that means that there should not be people who work in this country who do not have access to paid leave. And that's just it. There should not be anyone in our country that does not have access to comprehensive care. And so in the light of um, thinking about our, our additional responses to, to COVID through legislation, we want to make sure that um, that people have access to paid leave, that people have access to childcare, um, particularly if they are frontline workers. We want to make sure that as a baseline, if we are talking about testing treatment related to COVID-19, that those are going to be um, assessed with no cost sharing for the individual. And right now, though, you know, in theory, we have particularly for testing um, access to access to free testing, and it's really not access to free testing for all. Um, unfortunately, the way that it's set up, um, there may be instances where patients would still be financial, financially liable, um, depending upon the nature of the evaluation and the type of um, coverage that they have. And so if we're really, as a country, committed to fighting this, then that means that people should not have the fear of a thousand, $8,000 bill um, holding them back from really accessing the care that they need. And that really gets us to a much, much, much larger conversation about how do we reach health equity, but I will save that for later. But as of right now, um, definitely testing and treatment and a vaccination once it's here should be available to all with no cost sharing. And um, everyone should have access to paid leave and also access to childcare when they need it. Yeah, I think some of those are not even things that um, people who uh, who don't need those things realize are actually important for the good of the society. You know, this is not just a, these are not just solutions. It's like, well, if you don't have a kid, like this doesn't matter for you. This is a sort of like the rising tide raises all boats sort of situation. Um, if you want people to be able to go to their nursing jobs to help save your life when you catch COVID-19, even if you don't have a kid, they're going to need childcare, you know? Um, so I think that this is just, a, a really great example of how having some of these um, some of these things in place that maybe should have I mean that really should have always been in place um, are really just so much more crucial now um, for no matter uh, who you are in society it's really going to impact you to have some of these things um, in place and just save so many more lives. 
And can I actually add one more thing that I, that I think is equally important is that when we're talking about billions of dollars, which is what we're talking about here, that our, you know, our congressional folks have decided that it's going to be billions of dollars that are going to go towards this effort. We need to make sure that we are tracking this money and tracking the money in a way that makes sure that it is equitably distributed. So if we are seeing rates that are higher in particular communities, then that means that resources and testing and vaccinations, et cetera, should be equitably distributed, meaning, you know, resources should be intensely provided to the communities that are, you know, p- potentially vulnerable and are having um, disproportion- disproportionately higher mortality rates. That's right. So that's I, also important. <laughs> that's, I think that's a huge point. I think, um, there's been a good amount of conversation about whether or not the level of investment that right now is coming through the CARES Act and and the new package that'll be underway is sufficient. Uh, certainly on the on the right, there are you know concerns that it's that people quote to 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 sort of paraphrase Lindsey Graham here. He's worried that people will get too much money um, through the CARES package, which is uh, as cool. obscene and ridiculous as it sounds. Um, but we haven't had as much conversation about making sure we are tracking the spending to your point, Dorianne, and making sure that it is targeted and going to the communities and to the folks, uh, the the neighborhoods and cities and people who are being most impacted by this pandemic, either from an employment standpoint. Um, we know there are a lot of you know women of color who work in industries that are being seriously impacted right now on the, on the service side um, that are potentially unemployed or at least having wages reduced, and also on the health side as we talk about disproportionately high mortality rates because of COVID-19. And I just think that's such an important point that you made. We need to track the spending and make sure that we're not just pushing money out into the world, but that we're specifically pushing money into the communities that are being hardest hit by this COVID-19 pandemic. So when we when we come back, we're going to have our fourth segment here to talk a bit more about COVID-19, its disproportionate impact on communities of color um, and what we can be doing in terms of next steps uh, at home and and across the country. Uh, We'll be back on the Generation Progress Takeover, The Leslie Marshall Show. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall and we'll be sure to share your tweets. Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host Charlotte Hancock, and I'm Brent J. Cohen. Uh, today um, we've got some guests joining us uh, virtually. We're talking about the disproportionate um, impact of COVID-19 on communities of color, particularly uh, Black communities um, in many, many cities in America, places around um, the United States. Um, and we have joining us uh, Connor Maxwell, a senior policy analyst on the race and ethnicity team at the Center for American Progress, as well as Dorian Mason, the director of health at the National Women's Law Center. Thanks both of you uh, for joining us um, again over, you know, via via phone. 
Thank you again for having us. Yeah. So looking longer term, um, Connor, I think what should policymakers be doing to end or at least minimize the impact of structural racism in the healthcare system? I know uh, a lot of the solutions we've talked about are solutions that are critical and need to happen now um, in the next stimulus package, um, in the next rounds of legislation that are passed to protect public health care. Um, but what should we be doing um, sort of go- looking forward um, in, into, into forever on this? It seems like a longer term problem. Sure. So uh, the first thing I'll say is, you know, a person's health outcomes isn't just about the health system. You know, there's there's housing, there's education, there's um, economic well-being that all play a role. Um, but when we're looking specifically at the healthcare system, you know, one of the places that we really need to start is with how we train our healthcare professionals. You know, a, a third of all African Americans, more than one in five Latinos and Native Americans have experienced racial discrimination when trying to go uh, see a doctor and get the care that they need. Um, we know from the data that um, people of color are much more likely to be suspected of drug-seeking behavior when they're seeking care. Um, we know that medical students are much more likely to think that um, that uh, black people have higher pain tolerance. And so, you know, it really starts with with how we educate our healthcare professionals. But, you know, the second thing we need to do is expand access to care. You know, in the 21st century, in such a wealthy country, there should be no one who's struggling um, to decide whether or not they can they can afford care. You know, care, you know, care needs to be universal. Um, And then the third thing is 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 access in terms of, um, you know, proximity, you know, making sure that there are clinics and um, and hospitals in these communities and also uh, language access, making sure that the care that people receive is culturally competent. So those are just, you know, just a, a handful of things that we can do that would make a big difference in health equity in the long run. Thanks. Thanks, uh, Connor. That that absolutely makes sense. Um, and I think that point that you made around ensuring doctors and medical students are also confronting their own implicit bias in terms of the person-to-person care and also addressing some of the structural underlying issues around access to care, you know, need to go hand in hand is hugely important. Uh, Dorian, what if for folks who might be at home listening and, and hopefully are are rightly outraged, um, by some of what we've we've talked about today, what should people be calling their representatives, whether at the state or federal level, and asking for, um, both in terms of right now for for addressing and responding to the COVID nineteen pandemic, and in terms of ensuring some of the longer term health equity that that Connor just spoke to. Right. So before I get to that, I wanted to make one more point around the like when we're looking longer term. Um, around health equity and how the healthcare system can kind of undo some of the structural racism that it has. Um, I'd also like to make sure that we bring up that that your care shouldn't be tied to whether or not you have employment. And right now in this country, we have a system that is set up that essentially equates you know, whether or not someone deserves to have access to coverage to what they are quote unquote contributing to society through through their work. And so many people have um, really health access to health care through their um, through their employer or union sponsored plan. Um, and I think that really does 
sort of speak to whether or not we as as a society, as a country, um, truly believe that everyone deserves to have access to care. Um, and unfortunately, until we decouple um, having employment to having, um, having access to coverage, uh, we're going to see some of those same structural inequities. Because if we're talking about a labor force, if we're talking about people who have access to the types of jobs that will give them, um, you know, comprehensive care, uh, many times that locks out people who um, are, are parts of the communities that we're talking about today, black and brown communities, and, and many times um, people with intersecting identities. So just want to make sure that we talk about that if we're talking about long-term um, and access to an equitable, you know, anti-racist healthcare system. Um, but as far as what people can do right now to uh, reach out to the representatives and ask, I think all the things that we talked about earlier, right? So we want to make sure that everybody, without regard to their ability to pay, without regard to their um, their insurance or coverage status, without regard to any of those other things, people should have access to testing, have access to treatment, and eventually have access to a vaccination with no cost sharing. Um, and that is what you want to ask your representatives to, um, to ensure it's taking place. And you also want people to be protected in every sense of the word. So they need to have paid leave in case they, you know, need to take off work to, to deal with this virus. They, if, you know, they need to have childcare in case they're asked to remain on the front lines and, and have children um, that they have caretaking responsibilities for. And we also want to make sure that we're asking our representatives to not allow states to use the COVID-19 pandemic as a means to restrict comprehensive care, meaning there should not be restrictions on eligibility for Medicaid. Our federal marketplace should be reopened. Um, mm -hmm. And we also want to make sure that, that bans on abortion care, which is necessary health care, um, are not put in place under the guise of responding to the pandemic. So those are the things that we want to ask um, our representatives. Thanks, Thanks so much, Dorian. Um, and we are just about at the end of this for today. Thanks so much to our producer, Mark Grimaldi, um, and our senior press associate, Emily Leach, as well as our guests, Dorian Mason and Connor Maxwell. And thanks so much to all of our listeners. You can find more about CAP at AmericanProgress.org and NWLC at NWLC.org. We'll talk to you all next week.